Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to another cracking Empire podcast interview special. Get Carter is one of the greatest British movies of all time. It's a relentlessly bleak crime thriller in which Michael Caine's gangster goes back from London to his old hometown of Newcastle. Thankfully, he doesn't even attempt the accent. And well, he doesn't exactly right some wrongs. He wrongs some wrongs. And along the way, there are some of the most iconic images and lines of the last 51 years. The movie came out in 1971, would you believe? There's Kane at his coolest and most cold-blooded, whether he's wielding a shotgun in the nude, having phone sex with Britt Eklund, or throwing Alf Roberts off of Coronation Street off the top of a multi-storey car park. And there are lines of dialogue that you have almost certainly misquoted at some point in your life. It is an absolute belter, made all the more impressive for being Mike Hodges' directorial debut. On the big screen, that is, Hodges had written and directed two TV movies, Rumour and Suspect, before making the step up by adapting Ted Lewis's hard-bitten crime novel, Jack's Return Home. It was a quick turnaround as well. Get Carter came out almost exactly a year to the day after Jack's Return Home was first published in 1970. Yet the quality didn't suffer, as you can see in this brand new 4K restoration that the BFI has just re-released in cinemas and which will hit home entertainment in July. Hodges, like his star Michael Caine, is still going strong. He's 89 now and he recently took time out to talk to me for the Empire podcast. We talked about Get Carter, of course, and we also touched on his eclectic career, which has seen him direct the likes of Pulp, another Michael Caine starer, Flash Gordon, Morons from Outer Space, Black Rainbow, and Croupier. He talked about some of those and that career and things like his ill-fated attempt to direct Damien, Omen 2, with great candor and insight. And I loved chatting to him. Hope you guys do too. Here's Mike Hodges. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Get Carter, which has been re-released, restored, remastered in glorious 4K. It is the great Mike Hodges. How are you, sir? I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> that covers everything. You can interpret it whichever way you like. <laughs> it's a hell of a thing to be talking about Get Carter almost 50 years after... Uh, yeah. After it's it's come out, uh, it is I think Mike probably the most misquoted film of all time. In what way? In what? And, and I think people just get things wrong. Uh, they remember things. Uh, you know, <laughs> you could say quoting Get Carter is a full time job, and with you know, yeah, see that that's a misquote. For example, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but it's interesting that these these. Uh, Phrases slipped out and became moved into the general general language, the general way that people were communicating. It's very interesting, I suppose. A sort of compliment, I suppose, <laughs> you know, to have all of those uh, quotes in a thin glass. And you know, people used to shout at me with all these things every time they knew I was, you know, in a thin glass. Or, You're a big man, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, at the time, I never. I thought this is okay, fine. I'm, I'm flattered, but I, as looking back, it's pretty odd, actually. <laughs> and how much of that? How much of that? Those quotes, those famous quotes. How much of them? How much of that came from you? And how much of it came from Ted Lewis, who wrote the original the book? Well, original it book? Oh, piss holes in the snow. I, you know, it's very difficult. I haven't read the book for ages, but I, I, I can only say that it'd be certainly fifty-fifty. And if, if not more intense, caught than mine. 
Is it something that over the years you became aware of? Because the film comes out in 1971, and if I'm right in thinking, does does well. It's well received yeah. uh, at the time. Um, but was there a moment when you began to realize that you had made something that had a cultural footprint as well? Yes, it's weird. So the two things actually. Anthony Fruin, who's the name you may not know, but he was he was Kubrick's sort of side his his right hand man for many years. He wrote he was a novelist as well as everything else. He's a very talented man. And he wrote a novel which started with someone running a video of of Get Carter. And that's the beginning of the of the book. And then I was in New York some years later. And I was in a restaurant, a very famous one, like the name I can't remember, mm-hmm. was owned by an Englishman. And when he found out that I'd done Get Carter, he went absolutely apeshit. I mean, he was just he was just so excited. And I realized then that until then I didn't really know, you know, that, that it had this underswell of people who loved the film. I just didn't know it. And it sort of it disappeared as quickly as it is it arrived in many ways. And then I think also I, I kept being told that Ted, oh God, what was it called? The, he had this television channel, the first one that was oh, almost, Ted Turner. Ted Turner, yeah. yeah. And he had, they ran it week in, week out, uh, you know, get Carter. So I knew there were supporters, but I, had, I wasn't conscious of how, how tenacious they were, actually, you know. <laughs> Was there a time, Mike, when you were, when mentioned, because obviously you move on with your career, you move on to direct other films, you have a very eclectic filmography. Um, so was there a point when, I don't know, when Get Carter starts to bloom again, was there a point where you you almost became tired of the film and uh, sick of the film even in, in a way? I don't think, it's, it's, it's kind of curious. Uh, first of all, you 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 accept that the film is is a good film. I think it got, you know, I think certain uh, uh, surveys, you know, overrated the film. It's in danger of being overrated. Whereas, you know, I'd I like it to be. I like it being overrated, <laughs> but I think it's uh, you know, it was voted in you know, with your magazine, I think, um, by the best British film ever made. Now. Uh, it's a good film. I'm, I'm proud of it, but it's not the best film, British film ever made. It really, uh, it's a, it's a good film. <laughs> Mike, take it from me. It's a great film. So, um, <laughs> is it, where does it sit for you in your filmography? Is it is it your favorite film of yours? Yeah, well, the, I, because they're all so different. I mean, I'm I'm dad. There's a the, having a retrospect of my films at the moment at the NFT. And I'm glad that certain films are being resurrected by, by Blu-ray, by Arrow in the main Arrow, uh, and that that so films that I they got lost like Black Rainbow, which is a really interesting film. I'm very proud of it, and that's now getting reviewed again. Um, so I I've always coming from behind because after Get Carter, so many of my films like like Pulp and The Tunnel of Man was never shown here, and that's being shown at the uh, uh, at the at FT, and I I think it will be on Blu-ray hopefully before I kick the bucket, and it's um, so everything is sort of fitting into place because my career was was kind of bumpy. It's a bumpy career generally, 
Um, and I settled down again. And the 80s was, was pretty tough for me. Um, in the 80s, I, uh, uh, I, I had to do various films, which I really wouldn't have done normally. Uh, but I had to live. And, uh, and I was never any good at setting up my own projects, ever. Uh, I always needed help from somebody. My advice to any filmmaker these days is to get a good producer. I had one in Michael Klinger, and I, um, I went to America, and I made the film, and I was also the producer. And uh, I never found anyone really after that uh, that I could make, apart from Mike Kaplan with Art Sleep and I'm Dead. Mm. And what, what was it about Michael Klinger, who obviously produced Get Carter? Well, Klinger was wonderful. I mean, he'd done Polanski's first two English-speaking films. But once he chose you as director, that was it. You know, he just, he just helped you. He helped you make it. And uh, he never interfered. You know, I mean, he, he come, well, he wouldn't make suggestions or anything, but he would always trust the person he'd chosen. Well, in my case, I mean, the person who made the film. And certainly that trust was shown in with Pulp because this was a, this was a crazy off the head Crazy film, but in many ways. <laughs> and he stood by, and I think it's his favourite film, or was he's dead now, poor man. Yeah. Was Pulp something that came about uh, directly as a result of Get Carter? Were you and Michael, uh, both Michaels, Kane and yeah. Klinger, were you enjoying working together so much that, because Pulp happens pretty quickly as well after Get Carter. So was this something that, was this something that you were working on and then? No, it was a, uh, well, we agreed that we wanted to make another film together. Yeah. Uh, the Three Michaels, so to speak. And I, uh, they, Michael Clayton gave me various films, scripts to read, you know, and I didn't like any of them. And, they, and I really wanted to go back to writing my own, which I'd done before Carter. I mean, in a sense, they were totally original films, like Suspect and Rumour. And mm. I wanted to go back to that territory again. So I said, look, I'll write uh, this script for you I don't want to be paid and I don't want anyone to make it unless they like it so I'll do it on on uh, if you like it we'll make it if you don't like it okay fine so I wrote Pulp it was originally called The Memoirs of a Ghostwriter which needless to say as a title wouldn't wouldn't survive very long but it didn't so it ended up being called Pulp um, and uh, both Finger and Michael liked the film although it's pretty mad I must say um, and were brave enough to do it. And they were brave, I think, to, to take it on. I was brave to write it, and they were brave to make it. <laughs> Especially when the pressure at the time must have been to make something else like Get yes. Carter. It's always the same. You know, you always, if you have a success, they, everyone wants you to make, a, make the sequel, basically, but in a different form, in a different title, with a different cast and everything. But they want another Get Carter after Get Carter. And I didn't give them that, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, your masterstroke, of course, with Get Carter, and spoilers, by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen Get Carter, although if you haven't seen Get Carter, why are you listening to this interview? <laughs> See the film, then come back and listen to the interview. Uh, it's because you, you kill Jack Carter at the, end of, of, at the end of Get Carter. So there you go, sequel avoided. Right, exactly. That solved <laughs> that problem. <laughs> We didn't solve the next one was everyone wanted to make a you know another film like Kate Carter. Of and course. Maybe I should have done. Maybe I should have stuck to uh, thrillers or crime stories. Instead of which I made something which is a satire on crime stories, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
silly me. <laughs> but but I like that you didn't, Mike. I like that you uh, you bounce around. It's it's hard to it's hard to pigeonhole you as a director. It's hard to categorize you. And I I know there were periods in your career where things didn't quite work out. Um, you know, you you started off directing Omen Two, and that didn't quite work out for you. Um, but again, that was something that was very different to what had gone before. Yes, it's a mistake on my part. In what way? Well, because I, I don't like horror films, to be honest with you. Um, and I, you know, I just, I, I was, I just knew that I was, as soon as I started, as soon as I went to LA to, you know, to work on it, I, I realized I made a terrible mistake. And I, uh, so I, I was grateful to leave, to be honest with you. People think I was fired, but I wasn't actually fired. They asked me to to operate in a different way, an alien way to me. And I said, no, I can't do that. And they wanted me to list the shots I was going to do in the, in the morning, give it to the first assistant, and, and that was going to be it. And I couldn't do that. So I left, and I was very happy to leave. I was so happy, I said, I don't want to be paid anything. And they were pleased with that. They loved it. <laughs> <laughs> my agent hated me. My bank manager hated me, but they loved me. <laughs> I got a letter from the producer saying you wanted last, uh, last true gentleman in the world, or something like that. Uh, that shows you what, what kind of people I was working with. Oh my God, that's that's incredible. Because because some of your some of your work's still in the finished film, I believe the the stuff with Ian Hendry and and Leo McKern. That's 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 you, isn't it? I don't know. I, I've only seen Omen two twice, I think maybe. Okay. Um, so no, I shot. You can tell the, the difference between my material that I shot and the director who came and took over. Mm. I was totally different. I was making a different film. But, to the producer what they wanted. It's a common mistake with films is that you, the director and, and the filmmaker often has a totally different picture to the person that you're making the film for. And that was the case with, with Omen. Yeah. So it was a mistake on my part. You've got to make, I learned from, I learned from all of these things, but I learned that you, you've got to make sure that you're making the same film. And you're, <laughs> otherwise it's really difficult, I tell you, <laughs> as I found to my cost. The, the the last time we spoke for the podcast was for the re-release of Flash Gordon. Um, this time you were on the same page with with Dino. We eventually got on the same page. I don't. We didn't start off there, but I don't think. Uh, but we did eventually get on the, on the same page. I mean, Dino, with all due respects to him, uh, uh, didn't realise that it had to have, have to be slightly comedic. It was not to, you know, I was took took the film. You know, it's based on a strip cartoon drawn in the 1930s. And it starts off with Dr. Zarkov building a rocket in his greenhouse or his, his conservatory at the back of his house. You know, and in those days, we hadn't been to the moon. And, you know, but now we had. So you couldn't possibly have a film where you took it too seriously. Let's put it that way. But you had to take it seriously when it came to the, you know, the Saturday morning quick fast you know, appeal to the young people, to young people. So I, uh, Dino just didn't realise that. And the crew would laugh in the dailies, you know, in the morning, and Dino got, got very upset, like, why they laugh? You know, why they laugh? And I had to ask the crew not to laugh, you know, so because he, he was slow to realise, um, seriously, 
that it had to be. There was no other way of making the film, tongue in cheek. No other way. <laughs> quite right, quite right. And uh, but but um, I, I've got to let you go in a second, Mike. But uh, I, we, obviously, Black Rainbow is something that is close to your heart. But uh, but otherwise, should we skip past the eighties for you? If it was a bad time for you, was it was it just tough in terms of getting projects you wanted to make off the ground? Well, there's that. I mean, I you know, but it's also that um, you know when I took you know when I took on some scripts that I wouldn't normally have done. I was trying to make a good good film out of this, out of a rather bad script. Some people would call it a purse out of a sow's ear, but um, and that's difficult, frankly. So, and I, I didn't fail. I mean, Prayer for the Dying was also re-edited without my permission, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, it was a it was a tough call for me because I took it on a, a month before they were meant to start shooting with Mickey Rourke, and they had a deal with Mickey who for you know, a million bucks, I think, whether the film was made or not. And uh, so I did them a big favor by sort of taking, I needed the money and I needed the work. Uh, but I also did them a big favor by taking the film on. And uh, and then they paid me back by, you know, the film's all right as it stands. It's okay. I don't mean that. Mm-hmm. But I obviously I know what it was like when I finished it. I know the music was different. I know the sounds were different. And, you know, in the main, all the visuals are the same, but uh, it's not the same film, you know. And so I, I, you know, caused a lot of anxiety in my life because uh, it was about the IRA and um, certain newspapers, tabloids, said that I was an IRA supporter and that's why the film was, I wanted the ending as I'd had it and had me to, but nobody'd seen the film. Nobody, so they just made it up. It's just, when I was then getting IRA threats and God knows what, oh. uh, you know, or threat, no, not from the IRA, from the, from, uh, you know, other people who were against the IRA. Yes. So it was a very uncomfortable period for me. Oh my word! <clears throat> well, in that case, um, uh, that's that's let's finish this interview on a high, uh, without recalling death threats and and, and whatnot. Um, because if people haven't seen Black Rainbow, if, if you can go and see the 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 season of Mike's films at the NFT, Black Rainbow is a fantastic film. Rosanna Arquette and 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 uh, Jason Robards, really really great stuff. Uh, and then there was a gap. Between that, I'm, I'm between that and and Croupier, which I think, and then I'm asleep and I'm dead, which is your Clive Owen double whammy, uh, if you will. Um, and Croupier in particular is a, is a fantastic film, and was that something that you look back fondly on that movie in terms of returning you to to the director's chair and working with Clive? I mean, it resuscitated my career, Croupier. And it started, and not Clive was a good actor before I ever employed him. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a star in this country. But, you know, Croupier made him an international star because the film went through the roof in America. But here, you know, again, I had to, I had to stand by the film and make, I mean, the main thing that came through all of my life and career in terms is you, you've got to make the film, but you, you leave the film in the way that you want it to be made. That's the only crucial thing. What happens to it after that, it's, it's no, it's no, you can't control it. Stanley Kubrick could control it, but I wasn't Stanley Kubrick, you know. And I, I, you know, so you just have to say that's the film that I made, and I'm proud of it, and that's it. And you know that, like a message in a bottle, it'll roll up somewhere, and it, and it usually does, you know. 
Black Rainbow was the way I wanted the film. Mm-hmm. And Croupier, again, I had to fight to keep the film that, that I and Paul Myersbroker wrote it, uh, made. And I had no problem with I'll Sleep with Undead, but Croupier didn't look like it was going to get to just to be distributed in the UK, which meant the end of its life. So again, I repeat, the BFI were, mm. I'm grateful to them. I'll sleep and I'm dead is is now your last film. We were we were talking yeah. uh, before I pressed record on the on the podcast. Uh, we were talking about how you are now retired. You're you're almost you're almost ninety. But but after after the film came out, were were there other films in the pipeline or did you? Yes, there were. Yeah. Well, that's that's making films in this country. You know, you I had another beautiful script called The Chinese Busker, which uh, Trevor had written again. And I had another one which I was making with Mike Kaplan uh, called Marianne the Magician based on a Thomas Mann novella. And we couldn't get the money. Uh, they're both terrific scripts. But we just couldn't get the money. Uh, you know, well, the British film industry is a, is a curious one because it's, it's no longer there. When I made Get Carter, there was a, you know, the studio system was still in operation. Mm. And most of my films were studio films actually and although everyone cursed the studio system uh in those days i began to miss it terribly <laughs> because you get you know once one person makes the decision then it gets made you know that's that yeah. but now it's you know if you look at the credits of films these days there's about 20 companies involved you've got to put this package together you know to get this damn thing made and uh and with dino you know joy working with dino as with, as with michael Klinger. Was you've got decisions. It's one person making a decision. Bob, that's it, and uh, and that's joyful when you're a director. You you feel secure with that kind of situation. Uh, because even something like Roy Budd, yes, choosing him as a composer feels yeah. like something that nowadays you would probably have to jump through a dozen hoops and have yeah. a dozen different a dozen different yeses from a dozen different people that you've never met before that gets approved. But yeah. it strikes me that back in 1971. I want this guy, this this jazz, <laughs> this jazz musician, and they say yes. No, exactly. It's, it's a much freer situation, and a lot of people, and most most of the people who get involved. If you look at the number of uh, producers there are, I mean, these are all people who've got a, their fingers in the pie. How can you make a film with that kind of under those circumstances? I mean, I know you know uh, a lot of directors must be absolutely hell trying to appease all these people. And no, most of them bugger all about filmmaking, uh, so which makes it even worse. So it's uh, it's a curious uh, profession. I'm glad I'm not. I couldn't make films now. I don't think you know. I just couldn't do it. Uh, and what do you do these days, Mike? What, what what fills your days if you're if you're not making films? Oh, well, um, that's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> I I read a lot. I listen to music a lot. I I used to play the clarinet and I used to draw and paint a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, those have seemed to have dried up now because I just read and read. <laughs> Nothing. I'm a voracious reader. Um, that's one, one my way of escaping now. Amazing. And uh, and listen to music as well. And uh, and the last question I'm going to ask you is, do you ever listen to the Get Carter soundtrack? Do you ever stick on Roy Budd just for a bit of, a bit of play? Just a great soundtrack, Mike. I got to know it is a wonderful soundtrack. Roy was terrific. Uh, I got to know his his, his widow, Miss mm. Frenchie, a lady. She's not, she died 
uh, with COVID, I think. Oh. And uh, so I managed to get uh, jazz record requests on on Sunday afternoon, late afternoon. Now it used to be Saturday. Anyway, BBC and all their wisdom changed it to Sunday. Um, and I managed to get it, uh, Roy's theme tune played on uh, played on it, which gave her a thrill. So I was pleased about that. That is beautiful. A, a beautiful note on which to end. Uh, yeah. My colleagues, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and go see Get Carter. Uh, it, it, the re-release looks astounding. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Thank you, Chris. It was very delightful talking to you. And I mean Oh, bless you, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Likewise. <laughs> Cheers, you. Mike. Okay, so that was Mike Hodges. Hope you enjoyed that interview. For more from Mike on Get Carter, I did an in-depth interview with him for Empire Magazine, which you can see in a future issue. For now, though, Get Carter in all its restored glory is playing in selected cinemas across the nation. So if you haven't seen it before, sorry about the spoilers in this interview, do go see it. It is absolutely phenomenal. And if you have seen it before, but you haven't seen it in the cinema then go see it on a big screen. You're a big screen, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. There you go. Nailed it. Right, I'm off to drink my nighttime Horlicks in a thin glass. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.